Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast surrounding the legacy of Roman Abramovich. It's complex, it's multifaceted. You know, it, to an extent, on some level, you're having a sort of counterfactual discussion. You know, do you think that Roman Abramovich could have won more? Which is a very difficult question because on some level his success at Chelsea has been wildly successful in the sense that when he originally came to England, when he originally took over Chelsea, there was a sense, even in the, probably the first two, three, four years, that what he was doing was simply ploughing money in without too much thought process. In other words, it was simply, I want success. I will throw as much money as it takes to get there, and I will then get the success. There was, uh, I suppose, an implicit understanding of, well, how long can this carry on? Is he going to simply spend all of his money, have all of this success, forever and ever and ever and ever? Or was it simply going to be, he's going to plough in all of this money, he's going to get all of this success and then disappear, you know, sell up, move on, he's won his European Cup, he's won his Premier Leagues, he's had his moment of glory, and it's a toy, and he's got bored with it. I think there was also a sense that he didn't know a huge amount about football, and how to run a club when he's began, when he took over, and that simply throwing the money at it, hiring every all the experts, and then, you know, the success would simply come. Now looking back on it, it's slightly different. In other words, he has a style. In other words, he will turn up at the place. He has a profoundly good instinct for for understanding his own sort of limitations. So in other words, he is a quick study. So his process is almost, I will hire the experts at the starting point who will then, you know, advise me, who will then run the club, while I am learning the ins and outs of it. But, not to get too... not to get too far in front, it, really you have to start at, at the beginning and understand how and why Chelsea were successful. In the sense that you start really with the sort of Ken Bates and the Chelsea Village. What that did from a sort of psychological standpoint was to take back the idea of Chelsea being glamorous. Now the Chelsea of the late 70s and 80s was not glamorous at all. The stadium was crumbling, you know, there was a car park behind the goal. <laughs> it the the tendencies were low, there was violence, it was certainly there was relegations, there was lower mid-table, you know, there was a lack of cups. There wasn't a huge amount of success. You know, there wasn't you know star players. There wasn't star managers. There was a recurrent fear that you know Stamford Bridge would fall into the hands of a propitious owner who would sell it for the property, and that they would then be exiled somewhere into deepest, darkest West London. You know, probably presumably somewhere on the district line maybe the outer edges of the district line or the outer edges of the Piccadilly line and that they wouldn't necessarily be anywhere central to London 
I suppose that would be a fear and that the ground would have to be small. It wouldn't be Stamford Bridge. And really, the, the ex- to the extent that Chelsea hadn't been particularly hugely successful. So they'd won the league in 55, they'd had some success in the 60s and the early 70s, but had long been in decline. There wasn't a huge you know, supporter base. You know, the attendances were low. So what... And the idea of Chelsea as a football club is always linked with Stamford Bridge and with glamour. You know, the name Chelsea. Stamford Bridge at, on the King's Road. It has a cachet that had Fulham who were... You know, so originally there's an element of the, the franchise about Chelsea. But then a lot of all of England's big clubs at some level have that. In other words, Manchester United start as Newton Heath. Yeah, they understand that if they want any form of success, that you would have to incorporate Manchester. In other words, they, they when they originally decided to change the name, they went through several different ideas, and the one that they hated the absolute most was Manchester United. No one liked it in the committee that was deciding it, but eventually they sort of... Due to a lack of any other options, they seem to have fallen onto it, and that's what really built you know, Manchester United into the success. If you look at, let's say, Birmingham, they're originally called Small Heath, and there's an the implied understanding that a team called Small Heath isn't going to be successful. If you want any kind of drive, Birmingham City has a cachet. It has a way of getting more people into the you know the stadium and build something you know that has i suppose the 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 grandness the idea that this is going to be Birmingham's team and that this you know the size of Birmingham the implicit size of Birmingham would mean that this team could be absolutely battling at the top level whereby small heath does not battle at the top level in the same sense that you know you get liverpool come out of they have a stadium they thought Everton were going to move in. Everton decide not to move in, and they are left with the stadium. They have to come up with something, you know, a an anchor tenant to make this stadium worthwhile. So naturally, you know, there's an element of creation about it. In other words, you're not just going to call it Anfield. You call it Liverpool. You stick them in red, and then that built, you know, a an image. That has led to the success that you know is what the sort of foundation myth on which Liverpool has been built, the club, and it's had the success. Everton are the true team of Liverpool, but the point is, is that you know the stadium at Anfield was developed in you know is, is a bigger stadium. That's why, and the brand of Liverpool has worked better. That's why they are in some element more successful than Everton. You know, the, the Everton brand doesn't go as far as the Liverpool brand. The same thing has really happened with Chelsea. In other words, the Mears family build the stadium. They need an anchor football tenant. The assumption is that Fulham will move from their cramped Craven Cottage to Stamford Bridge and be the anchor tenant. They say no. They turn it down. And they stay in their lovely part of you know Fulham and they've never really recovered from that. Whereby Chelsea, who are at this big stadium on the King's Road next next to you know transport infrastructure, they have that potential and they grow and that's why they are one of the bigger clubs in English football history and why Fulham aren't. 
So when we get to the 90s, you have the battle between Bates and Harding for, I suppose, to an extent, the soul of the club and also the, the ownership, the, the, the pink slip for the club. And Bates wins. And what, this, what the stadium rebuild and what Chelsea Village did was it gave some impetus back to the brand. Stamford Bridge was a nice place to go and watch football. You know, the implications of having a hotel, bars, restaurants, nightclubs on site. And it was within the sort of rebirth of English football after the nightmares of the 80s. And then you, know, you then had the Taylor Report. You know, you had Sky Television. And what Chelsea were able to do is... They sort of built from an sort of multifaceted. They were able to utilize a some a pretty good youth system. You know they created yeah you know, they developed you know players like Craig Burley, Frank Sinclair, Eddie Newton. There was a handful of good players that came through their youth system, and you then had the Glenn Hoddle, and the sort of element of fame that he sort of brought, and. You then had the, the sort of inc first inklings where you had foreign players, and Chelsea were really the early adapters. So Spurs did it with Jurgen Klinsmann, but it was a short term thing. In other words, and I've, I've discussed this in a previous podcast, is that it, he leaves after a season. So some of the benefits that he brings, it's just a flash in the pan. Whereby Arsenal buy Burkamp and there have a lot more long term success, of which he is a sort of pillar on it. But even Burkamp, his first season is, you know, under Bruce Rioch, there's problems behind the scenes, and it doesn't really ever doesn't get off the ground as such. Whereby Chelsea sign Rude Hullet. Now this is one of the sort of key moments really, is that what Rude Hullet did on the pitch for Chelsea is somewhat unimportant he there is there's not really it's a, a couple of signature moments but there's never a you know he's no longer the force that he was when in the late 80s and early 90s when he's doing it for Holland as a striker and at AC Milan he's more of a sweeper he's it's a bit of an old school one where he's he's got some skill but it's strictly limited and this is a sort of key moment because it really defined what goes on afterwards. In other words, Chelsea signed a handful of sort of aging foreign stars. And in the end, those stars actually end up being more beneficial as managers than they really do as players. So you've got so Rude Hullet takes over as a player manager. And he really builds on the success that you know Glenn Hoddle had started. And and I think it's key to note that. He was the you know was hired months before Wenger. I think sometimes we've sort of dramatically overstated the role of Wenger. Is that Rude Hullet does a lot of the things that that Wenger does, but he starts at a much lower base. You know he's got some decent younger players. He has a sort of smattering of experience, but. It's from a lower level. In other words, Chelsea's successes have really been... They had a bit of a European run in the Cup Winners' Cup in 94-95. But at the same time, in that same season, Arsenal have a run in that competition. And it's Arsenal that get to the final and have the moment against Real Zaragoza. 
not Chelsea. Now, Chelsea do get to a final in the FA Cup final, and they lose 4-0. You know, they are still lower mid-table. You know, they're still yet to really kick on. And Rude Hullet is the one that leads them to Wembley. They beat Middlesbrough 2-0. And you get really the start of of the re-glamorising of Chelsea. So they then sign Viali. Now, Viali does quite well as a striker, but he's, again, a sort of ageing player. And eventually, when Rude Hullet moves on, it's Viali that takes over as you know player manager, but really effectively becomes the, the manager. But if you look at some of the, the players that they signed in the 90s, there's an element of... They become famous, and because they are foreign in an era when there wasn't a huge amount of foreign players, and some of them were quite functional, is that they weren't overtly famous. So in other words, Frank LeBeouf becomes famous, but when they originally sign him, it's for a relatively... You know, it's not a huge transfer fee. But he's from Strasbourg. Uh, Ed Dohoy has played for the Dutch national team. But the most famous Dutch goalkeeper of that era was Edwin van der Sar. And even the sort of one... You know, if you were to think of a Chelsea Mount Rushmore, is that you'd put on it Terry, Lampard. You might put Czech on there. You... I would presume you would put Zola on there. You would put Didier Drogba on there. You'd probably pick someone, maybe a Peter Osgood, or you would maybe put on Chopper Harris. But none of those players were... And yet, if you look at the history of Chelsea's big foreign signings, is that none of them would come close to being up there. You wouldn't put Juan Sebastian Veron up there. You wouldn't put... Hernan Crespo, you wouldn't put Andrei Shevchenko, you wouldn't put Michel Balak on there. It, and to an extent, it, it becomes a recurrent theme. Chelsea's famous managers, high-profile managers, do well. Their famous high-profile signings, less so. Their signings tend to be, you know, they're, even the, the high-priced ones that, that are successful. So you'd say Drogba. But Drogba was in his mid to late 20s. He'd been playing for Green Camp a couple of years previously. He played for Marseille. And this was during a period when Lyon were the dominant French outfit. They'd won nine league titles in a row. And Marseille's success was in the UEFA Cup. And Drogba played a starring role in that. But they didn't win the UEFA Cup. And he played for the Ivory Coast. And at the time, Ivory Coast hadn't qualified for any World Cups, hadn't come close. And it was not known as a hotbed for African football. You know, At the time, the hotbed would, you'd say, Cameroon, you'd say Nigeria, maybe even to an extent, sort of Morocco and Egypt. But definitely not the Ivory Coast. We now know the Ivory Coast have a golden era, but it's after the fact. It's after Drogba has joined and after he has established himself as a Chelsea hero. Even if you talk about Zola, for example, is that in the when he signs for Chelsea in sort of autumn of '96, I believe, it's for four and a half million pounds. That's not a, that's a decent amount of money, but it is not an earth-shattering amount of money. At that time, four and a half million pounds got you Chris Armstrong for Spurs. That was our record signing. It ran about the same time. Now the difference is with Chris Armstrong is that he had never played for England. He'd only had one or two years in the Premier League. 
at Palace, who'd never been able to stay in the Premier League for more than a single season at a time. So it's not the most high-profile signing, and it's not for a high-profile amount of money. And if you look in at the time, it's Italian strikers you had... So this was the era of Baggio. This was the era where Del Piero had really taken the throne at Juventus. You had Ravinelli, you had Viali, you had Beppe Signore, you had Roberto Mancini. Zola was just one of those, you know, in a constellation of stars. He was in and out of the Italian team. He was not a centre part of the Italian national team. And he was playing for Palmer, and while Palmer were having uh, you know success, it was at UEFA Cup level. It wasn't competing for the Serie A. They do a few years after he leaves, but even within the context of Palmer, you're, you're looking at you know that was the rise of Hernan Crespo and the age of Tino Esprit. He was just one part of that. So when he comes to Chelsea, he's 29, and he's not massively known in this country. He eventually becomes you know, this fantastic, wonderful player and a really important part of Chelsea history and of Premier League history. To an extent, you know, one of the most successful signings of the sort of Chelsea, this Chelsea era, where they become glamorous because they have lots of foreign players, you know, they're spending a lot of money, and the aesthetics of Stamford Bridge and the Chelsea Village and the high-profileness of Ken Bates and the high-profileness of the managers, it produces, and because this, the, the element was the success was... We sometimes forget, you know, looking back at this time, just how important the television was what I mean by that was is that Chelsea's success was in the FA Cup it was in the League Cup and it was in Europe and this is a period of time in which because they win the Cup Winners Cup against Stuttgart is that is that is that European football at this time was entirely on you know terrestrial television so in other words, when Chelsea got to the FA Cup final, you would have seen the semi-final on BBC. You saw the final on BBC. You saw their run to the final in 98. That was entirely terrestrial. So in other words, everyone saw it. You didn't have as much televised football. There wasn't as many people on Sky as there are now. So they, were, they had a sort of more high profile than if you were to win the, do the same sort of things now. So in other words, if you won the FA Cup, if you won the League Cup, if you won the Europa League, you wouldn't be as high profile in the consciousness of the average football fan. As a kid, I watched a lot of Chelsea on television in the sense I didn't watch anywhere near as much Spurs because they just weren't on. And because what Chelsea had was at this element of glamour. And as such, it, and this is what I'm trying to say, it's an aesthetic. It wasn't necessarily that the players were overtly famous, but as a collective. Once you thought, oh, Le Bouf, and then they go and France win the World Cup in 98, and he's playing in the, the final. You get, you know, even someone like Petrescu, who was a really good, talented player at a time when, you know, Romania were doing really well in World Cups. But he'd come from Sheffield Wednesday. You know, and as the success was really incremental, is that each step 
you, you lost something on it. So in other words, by the time you get to sort of 97, 98, you know, you, the likes of Crave Burley, you know, have left and moved on. You know, the players like, you know, Frank Sinclair, you know, Eddie Newton, they're slowly but surely pushed out of the door because they're being replaced by, you know, with each step. So in other words, they win the FA Cup, they win the League Cup, they win in Europe. When they're working towards it and then they, you know, culminates in them qualifying for the Champions League for the first time in 2000. At which point they've got Desai. And Desai is a, a huge signing, but at the same time is that he's the best part of his career. So the time when he could split between being a centre-half and a centre-midfielder, you know, that had passed. You know, he'd moved to Chelsea for you know, a fairly nominal transfer fee because at that point AC Milan had really moved on. He was still a huge signing for the Premier League and there was a sense that he would then lead Chelsea to you know, potentially winning the league. It doesn't quite happen, but at the same time he added a, a gravitas and but it was still it was still to an extent an almost an element of admitting to weakness from Chelsea's perspective. In other words, Manchester United in that time spent ten million ten point seven five million on Yapstam and broke the world record for a defender. And Yapstam was absolutely in his prime. You saw him at World Cup ninety eight, he was fantastic. Whereby Chelsea at this point was still still needed an element of experience, a certain name brand quality, and that's really what Marcel Desai. In other words, there was an exception that he wasn't going to be the answer forever. But as you know, the first two three years he was going to bring a almost a mentality change. He was on who had actually won what they were looking to do. He'd won leagues, he'd won in Europe, and that's really what Chelsea were trying to move towards, and. There's a sort of slight sea change in the sense that the better they did, the less need they had for the kind of high-profile names. In other words, Zola, by this point, has become very famous. You know, you've got Desai, and they are proper, very talented football players, whereby, to the extent of, let's say, you talk about Kassaragi and Viali and Hullet, as players... They were really at the downswing of their careers. This was kind of one last swan song where there was good money, it was a good stadium, and it was the Premier League, which was seen in some ways as a step down, really, from the Serie A. So by the time we get to Abramovich taking over, we're at a state where Chelsea have just qualified for the Champions League in a sort of dramatic win over Liverpool. And there was the expectation that had they lost Chelsea were in massive financial trouble and if something if unless a miracle happened they were going to have to basically sell off their most high profile signings so the likes of you know Lampard who they brought for 11 million pounds from West Ham they were going to have to really auction off at just to basically keep enough money to keep the electricity meter running at which point Abramovich comes in and what's probably the most interesting thing is that he basically wipes out... So he wipes out the debt. So he's already got a squad that is close to competing. They, they, you know, at the start of every season, it was you know, Man United and Arsenal going for the title. Is this the year that Chelsea are going to make it You know, three teams battling? They, they always seem to... You thought, well, they had the defence, so they had 
Desai, they had LeBeouf, they had, you know, a, you know, you had, at this point you had Flo was playing brilliantly well, that was 300,000 signing from, you know, Norwegian, from, I believe it was Tromso, you had Zola, you had Wise with the experience and the, I suppose, element of being proper Chelsea. You had leaders, you had some silky foreign players, you had an intelligent foreign manager, and they'd spent large amounts of money. And they still, you know, they had a couple of, you know, nice players from the youth system. So you're talking about, you know, Jody Morris, John Harley, and the beginnings of John Terry, you know, making his first kind of steps towards, you know, the first team and the understanding that if, you know, Desai will help mould him and then Terry will replace him. But at the same time, at this point, they, you know, Viali's moved on and you've got Ranieri. So there was just, there was a sense that Chelsea didn't need to work as hard at the, you know, the fashionable elements of it. In other words, they didn't need some as much of a star name as they did three or four years earlier when they were really trying to establish themselves. And, you know, Ranieri is a very experienced manager, but he's not high profile. When he was first, you know, pegged to be Chelsea manager, we really didn't, you know, even considering that this was an era when English sports fans knew a lot about Italy, he wasn't the first name that, you know, sprung to mind when you thought of Italian managers. You were talking, this was an era of Arrigo Sacchi, it was an era of Capello, there was, you know, famous Italian manager names. Ranieri was not on that kind of shortlist in that regard. And so Abramovich really has this option to rebuild Chelsea you know, from a position of strength, but, and so the real question is, is really how does he do it? So he doesn't try and recreate Arsenal, he doesn't try and look for a, an Arsene Wenger figure, he doesn't really start as looking, you know, at Real Madrid as in trying to recreate the sort of new Galacticas. He doesn't look to try and find a, a Ferguson or a sort of class of 92, that kind of style of manager. In other words, for the first year, he kind of leaves it exactly almost as it is, says, you know, gives you know, some money to Ranieri, and away we go. <laughs> it's in this season that you, you sort of first see the inklings of Roman Abramovich's style. So... He doesn't immediately sack Ranieri. He lets him manage the year, but it's really a, a trap in the sense that effectively Ranieri either has to win the league or win the Champions League to keep his job. And they, to an extent, he really did have a chance. It's that one year, that kind of that that season was the symptomatic is that between you had the decline of Real Madrid of the that Galacticos team that had been sort of dominant in the late nineties and very early two thousands. You Barcelona were kind of coming off of the Orange Revolution. In other words, they'd had Dutch managers and a Dutch way of thinking, and it had kind of fallen apart. And they had really dropped off and were not anywhere near comp- competitive with Real Madrid. And it was really the starting point. You know, you get the first signs of the some of the youth players from La Misa coming through. So, Iniesta, Xavi, Messi, and there. But they're a few years away from really peaking as a team. 
So the United team that have been sort of dominant in England and had won the European Cup in '99, they've dropped off a little bit. You've got the you know the signing of Varane doesn't really work. You know you've got the decline of Giggs and to an extent the decline of Roy Keane. And this is the sort of period when David Beckham is slowly but surely starting to sort of lose focus, and you know it's. So there's really a sort of gap, and the Italian teams at this point were, they were slowly but surely, you know, retracting. You had the problems that German football had with the, the with the collapse of the Kirsch Media Group. So this was the season in which there was an opportunity for an unheralded team to win the European Cup, and it comes down to the semi-final. It's Monaco versus Chelsea, and I suppose it's the the sort of dagger is that Ranieri just looked flustered and panicked. He makes some poor substitutions and they just really blow it. And they lose the semi-final and Monaco play Porto. Porto win and it's Jose. And at this point, Abramovich effectively has learned. So in other words, he fundamentally understands that Ranieri, while a lovely man and a you know a decent manager, isn't hasn't really got that cutting edge that you would need to overtake Wenger or Ferguson or to win in Europe. And so he immediately cottons on to Mourinho. At this point, Mourinho has won the Champions League and he's ready to leave Porto. So it becomes a sort of natural synergy. What Mourinho brings is the the star power, which really, as an sort of almost as a narrative arc, replicates the element of success that Chelsea had had in their rise. So, in other words, you know, Hullet being signed as a player and then as a and more importantly as a manager gave just a huge amount of boost to Chelsea and to an outfit that would have been mid table. And help push them towards winning and Europe. And this is what Mourinho really brought. Is that he brought the star power in the sense of I am the special one. He is the absolute antithesis of Ranieri. Who is just the nice guy. He is I am here to win. I will deliver this victory. And to an extent what he actually does. And this is the I suppose the, the irony. Is that he is able to utilize the team that Chelsea have got and some of the and make some signings with the money but it's not overtly high profile in other words the goalkeeper they sign is Petr Cech he is from Rennes they are not a dominant team in in French football you know they get Drogba he is again as i've said not the most famous football player he's got potential but he was not on the transfer list, I would say, of Real Madrid, Barcelona, the Italian teams, nor the you know, Arsenal or Chelsea to that, sorry, Arsenal and United. And so the sort of glamour that Chelsea as a football club, the glamour that Mourinho brought and the glamour that Abramovich and the interest all kind of work as a, almost a smokescreen to cover for the fact that actually really the uh, the basis of 
Chelsea's success is really George Graham on steroids. If you look at the first successful Mourinho team, they are defensively strong, powerful midfield, rigid team structure, relieved with flashes of attacking genius. You know, a hard-running, hard-working centre-forward. You know, you have a leader, a centre-half who leads from the front, who is from the youth team. You have a foundational goalkeeper signed from the lower leagues. And that's really, you know, essentially you're talking about, you know, Czech as David Seaman and John Terry as Tony Adams. You've got, you know, in terms of strikers, you've got, you know, Drogba almost sort of being a hybrid um, Alan Smith with a little bit of Ian Wright <laughs> in there. It's If you look at some of their signings, you've got sort of Unheralded English and domestic players. You've got Duff, you know, Republic of Ireland, from, you know, a declining Blackburn. You They raid the West Ham breadbox. It's the, you know, West Ham relegation is, and Chelsea jump on it with sort of opportunistic glee. They get Joe Cole, who is, while he is heralded, he hasn't quite hit the, the high notes. You know, they sign him for about six, is it 6.6 6 million pounds, which in the early 2000s wasn't a huge amount of money. There was a sense, you know, he hadn't broken into the England team and hadn't had a run in the England team. You know, they sign Glenn Johnson and they sign some, you know, fairly unheralded former, like Asia Del Horno. But, but if you sort of compare it to, let's say, the sort of Jack Walker expenditure at Blackburn, you had Shearer, who was a dynamic, highly rated English striker. You had, def- you know, Lasso from... Chelsea, a sort of silky, talented left-back. You had Tim Flowers, who's a young, talented English goalkeeper who people were expecting to, you know, at least, you know, if not be England number one, compete with whoever, you know, eventually was Seaman. But you had Sutton, who'd been playing for an exciting third-place Norwich team who'd beaten, you know, Munich in the Olymp- Bayern Munich in the Olympic Stadium. It's, I mean, even some of their sort of larger acquisitions, let's say, SEN, is that Essien was a Ghanaian midfielder who'd played for Lyon. Now, Lyon, as I've said, were dominant in French football, but they were certainly not dominant in Europe. They hadn't really kicked on in the Champions League. And so it's not the most high-profile signing. It's not signings that will you know, sell lots of replica shirts in that thing, in that sense. And if you sort of compare them to, let's say, the Florentino Perez Galactico culture, you know, Roman Abramovich never seeks to overtly compete for Galacticos. Despite the fact that during this period of time, Real Madrid have a sort of a horrible run of, you know, they keep on getting knocked out in the second round of the Champions League. The argument I'm saying is, is that it's really easier to say that Chelsea benefited from Real Madrid's decline rather than trying to supersede them. They're not... Com- you know, that's a period of time when they... Sp- yeah, Real Madrid spent hundreds of millions of pounds on players, and it just doesn't work. They go through manager after manager after manager, with ever declining you know, yields. Probably the closest element that you can say that Abramovich is Chelsea in comparison with Real Madrid would probably be the element of the Galacticos e Pavones idea. So the idea of that was is that they would sign these, you know, front end Galacticos, so in other words, you know, attacking players who were very high profile, who would, you know, 
effectively the shirt sellers, so Beckham is an example, you know, Zidane to an extent, Figo, and that that would be underwritten by a core of youth team players who would basically do the dirty work. So in other words, they would be the defensive midfielders, the fullbacks, the centre halves, the backup goalkeeper, backup striker. They would basically, you know, because of their cheapness, because they were easily replaceable, and you know, the Real Madrid used to keep churning them out, they would underwrite the expect you know, they would basically save the money that they could then put forward onto the Galacticos. And to an extent you could say with, you know, sort of Lampard and Terry, that those, you know, were the sort of key players. You know, a little bit like, you know, comparable to let's say Raul and Casillas, who had come through the sort of Real Madrid youth system and a couple of their sort of and maybe I suppose unheralded signings. But but I would say that the sort of Chelsea expenditure of the first few sort of Roman years still has more to do with Chelsea's sort of history, you know, recent history in terms of building, in terms of spending money on, spending money quite heavily, but at the same time not on, not on Galacticos as such. In other words, the what Mourinho does is he creates these players into Galacticos. In other words, Lampard becomes one of the most highly rated players on the planet. So does John Terry, so does Petr Cech. And effectively what this does is, is that it gives Mourinho a power base within the Chelsea hierarchy. So in other words, he is the one that has turned up and has converted this talented squad into stone-cold winners. And and as effect, and in effect, the style of football, so the element of George Graham on steroids, works in effect as a sort of check and a balance on Abramovich himself. So in other words, he has to share the credit and the power with Mourinho and his style of football, which is, you know, a lot more effective than, let's say compare it to Ranieri's Chelsea who were quite easy on the eye but always had the element of defensive weakness that you always felt that against the top teams is that they could fall apart mm. or they wouldn't be able to sort of compete they would lose the big game which is the complete antithesis of what Mourinho's Chelsea but there's an undercurrent to this is that Abramovich wants this sort of beautiful football and I suppose the, the the cracks start to sort of appear in the sense of the... There's a symbolic signing, so the Makaleli signing. So again, that does reach back into sort of Chelsea's recent history. He is an ageing player who has been a key part of the successful Real Madrid teams. However... Real Madrid are looking to move on. They've basically, in their opinion, they've had the best out of Makaleli. He's likely to decline, and they feel that they can replace him. So they understand that they can get quite a bit of money for him off of Chelsea. So in other words, rather than try and match Real Madrid, they just sign the most functional of their players, the least sexy player, the defensive midfielder who is on 50 grand a week, and where all of the Galacticos are on 
millions of pounds more. <laughs> and the fact that Real Madrid replace him with Beckham. So the number 23 shirt. The idea is, oh, that's the same number that Michael Jordan had. It's an iconic, you know, world number. And it's really shirt sales before tactics. That's the hand of Perez. In other words, you know, Zidane is sort of apoplectic. He's like, you've just taken the, the engine out of the Real Madrid car. And that's part of their decline, is that they are more interested in the shirt sales part of it and the Galacticos. And the idea that you could just cram another world-class player in there, you know, in Beckham, and that it wouldn't, you know, that losing McAlealy would have only a limited impact. And yet the the element is, is that McAlealy goes to Chelsea, Chelsea have a huge amount of success, and that transfer works out. For Chelsea, it does not work out for Real Madrid. But the undercurrent is still there. There's still an element that Abramovich wants beautiful, sort of almost sexy football. And that, you know, as effective as a signing as Makaleli is, and he's definitely in the Zola and Desai importance of aging famous player that helps the overall team but is still not a overtly famous player he's only a sort of role player within Chelsea in other words you still need the Lampards you still need Drogba you still need Czech and Terry to really get the most out of Makaleli in that regards which is really where you then start to get the the road to Shevchenko and Balak in other words, I've always considered it in this sense. It's almost as if Roman Abramovich goes to Mourinho and says, what do you need? And Mourinho goes, okay, I want a striker and a midfielder. And so that's the first time that, that Chelsea really look like they're trying to do an element of Galacticos. So he immediately gets Balak on a free transfer, huge wages, and he spends £30 million on Shevchenko. So in Abramovich's eyes... You've asked for two players. I've given you the two best players that I can possibly that money can buy. And yet, for Mourinho, those two players don't really fit into what he's built. You know, theoretically, it should all work, and Chelsea should start you know, maybe scoring more goals, playing a bit better football. Uh, there was always an element of functionality about you know Chelsea and Mourinho in those first sort of two three seasons. They still play some fantastic stuff, but. In, compar- in comparison with sort of the with the Arsenal invincibles, it wasn't quite at that technical level, and this is sort of the the first signs that that there is really a fissure, that there's a crack, and that that really the starting point, which then leaves you know Mourinho to resign and. Sacked, resigned. You know, that kind of, there was clearly uh, an issue. You know, Shevchenko doesn't work in English football. It's the, the transfer is a failure. He ends up being pushed straight back to AC Milan within a couple of seasons. Balak does okay, but he's not the Balak of Bayer Leverkusen or the two thousand and two World Cup. And at this sort of point, that Abramovich really starts to take sort of full control. So I, I I tend to see Abramovich, it's a, it's a process. So let's look at his sort of infrastructure side of things. So in other words, stage one, he is a novice owner of a football team, so Chelsea. 
he hires the best. So he hires Kenyon from Manchester United to deal with the business side of the operation. He poaches Frank Arneson from Spurs to build the Chelsea youth infrastructure. So he utilises their skills and both of both Kenyon and Arneson have you know, pretty good success. In other words, Arneson starts building the youth system. You've got Cobham. You've then got Kenyon starts to increase Chelsea's exposure and business practices with the idea that eventually you know Chelsea will work as a functioning business. I've discussed this in a sort of previous podcast. I've put it as you know sort of you get you know sort of part one. Abramovich is where he's Vito Corleone and he's smashing things and building his power and destroying his rivals, and then you get sort of part two. Abramovich, which is Michael Corleone, where he's like, well, you know, my yeah, he's trying to take the business legitimate. He can't, he doesn't want to spend the sort of money that he was in his Vito Corleone phase, where he's just throwing money at the situation. So throwing two hundred million pounds to clear the debt, throwing two hundred million pounds to you know, win the league, hiring Mourinho. Or he's now looking to get more sort of organic growth. So in other words, he wants the youth system to start, you know, providing players so that you don't have to keep spending that kind of money. But the, he utilises their skills, but he limits their ability to build a power base. So in other words, you know, Kenyon has his success, but then within a few years is sort of pushed out to the side. He, it's not, he, he is not given carte blanche to run Chelsea as he sees fit. He has a portfolio, and once he's achieved that, he is then not required. Arneson builds the youth development but he's not given full control of the football operations, and he's then sort of pushed out. And really, you get sort of stage two is really where Abramovich replaces from within. You know, he has his acolytes. So, in other words, you end up with a situation now where um, where Marina Granovskia, who is someone that has basically come through the Abramovich Chelsea sort of office side of things. So, in other words, she starts. I'm think. I want to say. I want to say that she was a PA. It, she was an, She was part of the office staff, and then she has risen up through the ranks, and she's now one of the sort of main directors and sort of power bases within the club. And on the football side of it, he brings in Abram Grant as a sort of director of football, and then as a sort of, as a as a caretaker manager. You then end up with Michael Emanolo. But the, the interesting part about Emanolo and Grant is that they have a limited track record prior to taking their roles at Chelsea. So in other words, Avram Grant has managed the Israeli national team, a couple of domestic teams. He is in and around football, but he is not high profile. And same thing as Emanolo. In the mid-90s, he was coaching out in America. He ends up having an uh, element of... Under- he, you know, he has scouting history, but it, again, it's not overtly famous in comparison with, let's say, Arneson and, if you take Grant, in comparison with who he was replacing in Jose. And Granovskia, you know, is someone who is really... whose career has developed from working towards Rome. In other words, she is very good at what she does and what she does is effectively is to help run Chelsea as Abramovich sees fit. So in other words, she doesn't have a, a power base publicly in the way that someone like a Kenyan could. In other words, you know, Amanolo and Abram Grant don't have the ability to mobilise public support 
for their agenda with, let's say, the fans or to an extent the media. All of these people are effectively dependent on Abramovich patronage. Which really then sort of leads to stage three, which is really the limiting the power of internal dissent. So in other words, the classic example is Butch Wilkins. So Butch Wilkins is an assistant manager at Chelsea for two or three other managers, and he's very good as an assistant manager, and it works, and Chelsea are successful. But he has a power base with the fans that is completely separate from Roman. In other words, he is someone who came through the Chelsea youth system, he was captain at 19, led Chelsea very successfully, and then moved on to Manchester United and success with in Milan and with England. So in other words, he has a cachet, he has a symbolic relation with the Chelsea fans, and it's nothing to do with Abramovich. While his job is dependent on Abramovich, he is an impeccable football man. He's popular all throughout football. And when he says something, people will listen and people will back him up. So when he's critical of Abramovich, he's immediately cut. Even if he is, even if it damaged Chelsea in the short to medium term with the playing staff, didn't matter. He was critical of Abramovich. He had to go and he was never going to come back. Which really sort of goes on to stage four. The sort of chain of command element to it. So let's say you take Liverpool, for example. So they've, under John Henry, you know, they have... He picks up the club when they're in absolute economic turmoil. The Gillette Hicks has failed Liverpool. You know, they're in bankruptcy court. They're battling for, you know, with each other in the high court for control of the club. The club is spiralling, you know out of control, their great manager in Benitez has got the hump and left. So, and really what Henry does, he brings in Kenny Dalglish, a hero, he spends money, he spends money on the stadium, and they have success. Yeah, they, and then Klopp, and now they're going to the European Cup final. However, there are checks and balances at Liverpool. So in other words, when they built the new main stand, the fans walked out during the middle of a game to protest the high ticket prices. And as a result, the prices went down. You know, you, especially with Liverpool, you've got a cadre of famous ex players in prominent roles in the media. So you've got Carragher, McManaman, Owens, Souness. You know, you do have that. So these people, when they speak out, will be listened to by the fans and, you know, the football media, you know, industry, they will be listened to. So if they are critical, that will have some impact. Whereby with Chelsea, I, I don't see that. I don't see any of that element in there. In other words, the fans who were just a hugely important part of you know the CPA and we getting Stamford Bridge back under you know control and ownership of the fans and saving Chelsea. Within less than a generation that element has really dissipated. You have a generation of Chelsea fans who have just grown up with Chelsea being dominantly successful. And all of that really being, you know, a direct causal result of Abramovich you know, buying the club from Ken Bates. So there isn't a... There isn't internal dissent. In other words, you don't see protests, you don't see banners... And there's not really any criticism from 
you know, players in the media. In other words, yesterday there was a... Into, well, Frank Lampard was giving wrote a piece for the Standard, and it was you know, absolutely glowing about you know Roman and his role in Frank Lampard's career and his role at Chelsea and what he has provided. And that, there's nothing wrong with that, but what I'm saying is is that part of Abramovich's style has been to has been to insulate himself. From criticism. In other words, the fans are in no position to criticise Abramovich, even when he's done things that they disagree with. So let's say the sort of heartless sacking of, you know, Carlo Ancelotti, the two times that they've got rid of Mourinho. There's been anger, but no overt criticism. So if you compare him, let's say, with Daniel Levy, who is quite, who's criticised by fans. There are websites essentially dedicated to criticising Daniel Levy over absolutely everything. And so it really then goes on to sort of chain of command. So in other words, let's say you take Arsenal, because they've had this, you know, for years, Arsene Wenger was the club. In other words, he wasn't just the manager, he was effectively the manager, the coach, the director of football, and at times almost his own CEO. And he was his own head of, you know, the youth system, the football operations department. It was all through Arsene Wenger. In other words, every single doorknob at the Emirates, every single doorknob at the training ground was all through, you know, Arsene Wenger's, you know, thought process. He was always at the training ground, even when there was nobody else, even when it was just him and the guy mowing the lawn in the summer. He was that level. And so, in other words, any criticism of Wenger from the fans... There was that. So in other words, you could criticise the owner for not giving him the money, or you could criticise you know, Wenger for not asking for more money, but there was a element of criticism. In other words, there was the fans who wanted Wenger to stay, and the fans who wanted Wenger out. Even after he's left, they've now changed that model. But it, you still have the owner, you have the football operations department who basically decide who they sign, the youth side of things... And you then will have a manager, or more likely, really, a coach who will deal with the first team. So if you criticise the coach, it's really for his tactics. If you want to criticise the transfers, you really criticise the football operations department. And if you want to criticise how the club is running, let's say the ticket prices, you criticise the owner. With Tottenham, their ownership model is, you've got the owner, Joe Lewis, who is a billionaire who lives in Bahamas, but he is not their day-to-day. In other words, he is someone who signs the checks. And it's Daniel Levy who is the one who basically will deal with how your transfer budget. He's the one who is building the stadium. He's the one that deals with the sponsorship. He's the one that deals with the NFL. And you have Pochettino, who basically deals with the first team, and he deals with the transfer. So in other words, there's a collective meeting. So in other words, you will have Daniel Levy, Pochettino, the the head scout, and you know the head of the youth development, and they will all collectively decide on who they're going to buy, how much it's going to cost, and so on and so forth. So, in other words, with Daniel Levy, you, we have an understanding of how he works. So we know that he is a tough negotiator. We know that he gets intimately involved in the transfer side of things. So in other words, when Tim Sherwood is manager, it's in January, and Daniel Levy comes to him and says... Who do you want to buy? How much money you know, do you need? And he will then go ahead and do it. 
Now, Tim Sherwood says, nope, I'm happy with the squad I've got. Yeah, there's a famous story with Raphael van der Vaart, is that basically Daniel Levy calls up Harry Redknapp and says, do you want Raphael van der Vaart? And this is the final day of the transfer window. And I imagine Harry is probably at the window of a Range Rover <laughs> driving somewhere and answers it and says, yep, I'll have Raphael van der Vaart. Ergo, Raphael van der Vaart becomes a Spurs player. And if you look at like Man City, you've got the owner You've then got um, Tzatziki Berigestein and Ferenc Serrano. So they are the people that deal with the football operations side and the City Football Group. And it's Pep who is the manager who basically says, I want this player, this player, I need this for my transfer budget. And they are the ones who will then do it. <laughs> Whereby with Chelsea, I don't see any of that kind of structure there. So at the moment you've had Emanolo has resigned. He didn't want so Chelsea wanted him to stay on, but he decides to leave. Now with a Manolo, it's difficult because quite clearly you can see what Emanolo's passion is. He is someone who likes the scouting side of it. He likes getting young players. He likes really finding the diamonds, you know, in the rough, polishing them and. You know, really building the structure. So in other words, part of the success of the Chelsea youth system is you know, a sign of how well Emanolo has done. Some of the players that they have scouted, like say the Courtois, the De Bruyne's, they are you know, down to his work, the Christiansons, and his solutions to issues, not so much that, let's say, his ideology. So in other words, his solution to problems is get more young players in, get more quality in the youth system, and eventually that will then flower up and you will have a selection of young players who are all playing great football, and that's how we will build Chelsea. We will, set, we will, we will buy players, we will sell players, but they are the future. And so, effectively, the real question is, is that has, did Emanuel ever have the power to sack a manager or to select a manager? No. Because I don't see how someone who has spent their whole career at Chelsea building this wonderful youth development structure and then ends up with a situation where you get high-profile managers who are not youth development orientated at all. So in other words, it's the, the old Rahm Emanuel statement that you have, to, you, know, you have to use your crisis well. So when they have the second Mourinho crisis after winning the double... And he's sacked. They're at a crossroads. Now, they know that they've got enough talent not to get relegated. And they know they have a huge amount of sort of talent just underneath the first team level. And there's the knowledge that this team has probably gone as far as it could go. They're going to need new blood. And so really... I suppose my assumption would be is that if Emanuelo had the choice, he might have gone with someone like a Paul Clement. Basically giving him the job to the end of the season with under the remit of blood some of these young players, see if they are good enough to play in the first team, and then in the summer we can have a clear out. We can get rid of some of the older players, some of the malcontents, and we would have a better idea of who we can bring in and of where the squad is going in the future, so in other words, the next two, three seasons. But Chelsea don't do that. 
they go to Goose Hiddink, who at this point is semi-retired. He is no longer... He was not as sharp as the Goose Hiddink that took over Chelsea a few years previously. And so as a result, they sort of stumble through to the end of the season. They finish up 10th. And there's no there's no positives. There's no cup run. There's no victory that can really... All that, you know, Gussidink did was the absolute bare minimum, which was get Chelsea out of the relegation struggle and solidify them. And he's done that. But no young young player comes through. No one establishes themselves. And really, they're no better off at the end of the season than they were really at when Mourinho was falling apart. They still don't quite know which young players that they can rely on and and it sort of reverts to the same sort of short-termism. They then sign a couple of players and really just the it sort of struggles on. They get Conte in and so it's another high-profile manager. <laughs> so effectively what we're left with is Really, how do we how do we analyse Abramovich's tenure at Chelsea? It has been very successful. It's been successful on the financial side. So the money that he has put in originally, which at the time looked you know in the early two thousands looked like he was burning money, has actually as an investment has worked. Chelsea have massively, you know, are a club that if you were to sell them, you'd be selling them for billions, not hundreds of millions. So that money will, has come back, effectively. Mm. It was an investment that has worked. They have had success on the pitch, and it has been, and they've had huge success at youth level. And infrastructurally, the training ground is fantastic. The Stamford Bridge is still a good stadium, and he is now going to build his sort of legacy generator in redeveloping Stamford Bridge. So he's keeping up with the, I suppose, moral prerogative of keeping Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, they could have moved to Battersea, but you know, from on at least a romantic and emotional level, keeping at Stamford Bridge is fantastic. And if it's a 60,000-seat stadium, it will really will be a monument to his you know, spell as owner and the more positive aspects and the success that he has bred from it. I suppose the real question is, is that has his desire to see beautiful football been realised? And I'd say the argument is no. They've had some fantastic teams that have won the league and have been dominant, but they've never put together a an, an Invincibles team. So uh, the, the culmination of all of Arsene Wenger's years of work came into that season. They haven't produced what Man City have done this year in terms of not just dominating the league, but dominating it from an aesthetic standpoint which is very difficult. And they haven't had the sort of long-term success that Barcelona had in the sort of under Guardiola. And that was sort of continued on where you had Tiki Taka, where you had Messi, you know, and the sort of backbone that led to, you know, Spain having so much success at World Cup and European level. They haven't really had that. They have had this, you know, these patches of success, but they've never led on to anything. So in other words, their signature win, which is the European Cup, comes under a caretaker manager and an ageing team. It's one last, 
you know, it, it's very much comparable to when Arsenal got to the Champions League final. That team that got to the Champions League final for Arsenal was not the greatest Arsene Wenger team of all time. They were probably three or four notches down from the Invincibles. But it was, you know, it was, an, I suppose, an unspoken element that this team, this was the, this team's last go at it. And so they are defensively strong. They don't concede many goals up until the final. They're far more functional and far more practical. You know, Tierney isn't quite the player he was. Neither is... Neither is really the rest of the squad. <laughs> but they had this one last, you know, stab at glory and they fall just short in the final. Whereby the Chelsea team that wins the Champions League, they've sacked Villas Boash and really it's the classic sort of Abramovich element is that he spends a load of money to get Villas Boash in and he gives him the remit of I want you to make this team younger, more attractive on the eye and successful. And yet doesn't really back him fully in the transfer market and leaves him with an aging squad. Now, Vishbosh doesn't have the, I suppose, the experience or the nous to be able to get his team. You know, he's really been given contradictory aims. He's been told to maintain the level of success and completely overhaul the team at the same time and overhaul with these players still in situ. So in the end, it fails. In other words, the players who know that they are going to be slowly but surely phased out are not happy. He doesn't have the tools with which and all the players or the resource to be able to create this team on the hoof and still maintain success. So it all spectacularly falls apart and once again Chelsea are back at the stage of you know, getting a caretaker manager in. They go with his assistant, Roberto Di Matteo. Now, Di Matteo and the players essentially have reached a moment of clarity. They realise that the only way they're staying Chelsea players is if they win the Champions League, and the only way Roberto Di Matteo is staying is if he wins the Champions League, and so they basically battle back against Napoli, and they survive you know, a battering experience at the new Camp, and they come out and they win. And then they you know, go to... Munich and they have success at Bayern Munich Stadium against Bayern Munich. As much as it pains me to say it, that is an incredible achievement. But it was really not the best Chelsea team. Those players were not as good as they were two years earlier. However, the moment basically they and the manager had a moment of synchronicity and they then have this battling success. But it is not beautiful football that wins Chelsea the Champions League. It is grim, dogged, tough, fight, never say die. And it's an achievement, and it's fantastic. But at the same time, it's not beautiful football. It's not comparable to Barcelona. It's not comparable to Arsenal. And it's not really even comparable to some of the United teams that had success in Europe. To my mind, what Roman Abramovich has done is really changed the social contract between owner and manager. So really, previously, the manager would bring the expertise to develop the first team, youth infrastructure, 
with the requisite skills in the transfer market. The owner would underwrite this with the sort of capex spending in terms of hiring scouts at the behest of the manager, enlarging the ground, improving the training ground, and providing the transfer budget. What Roman has done is basically Roman Abramovich and Chelsea already have the amazing training ground at Cobham. Roman Abramovich already has a dominant youth team. Roman Abramovich already has a developed stadium and is building an even bigger stadium on top of that existing stadium. You know, Chelsea already have a scouting network and transfer infrastructure in place. In other words, there is no one that has been able to develop pure power from the youth side of it. Not Avram Grant, not Frank Arneson, and not Emmanuel. That's why he has left. They wanted him to stay, but he is gone. So effectively, what he's done is it, he's created a situation where the manager simply has to interpret the ownership philosophy into tangible success on the pitch. Which really, the question is, so what is that philosophy? I'd say you've really got five points. So you're looking at the immediate success, both home and abroad, on the pitch. Attractive football, but it has to be winning football. And the, and the desire for sort of a high-profile manager. Points four and five are, though, that you do have to produce the winning football within the budget that they've got. So, in other words, to keep up with um, FIFA Fair Play, that mechanism. And the fifth point is really youth development. They want to bring in the younger players that they have already at the club. But really, what you have is, is that points one to three directly contradict points four and five, especially within the context that Chelsea have sacked managers very quickly. It's a hair-trigger mechanism. And really the point is is that with all of this infrastructure that I've said about the training ground, the youth team and all the rest of it, well, do they really need high-profile managers? I suppose yes and no, but the thing is is that, for example, take Conte. So when Conte takes the job, what he's had in his career is he's worked through the Italian lower leagues, and he's battled up, and he's taken over at Juventus. Now, he takes over Juventus when they're in a bad situation. They've been relegated because of the Calcio Poly scandal. They have come back into Serie A, and they are up a mid-table. They're finishing 6th, 7th. They are not at the apex end of the Serie A. They've had Claudio Ranieri, who's done a pretty good job, but they are still not... They are not the Juventus of old. They are not the dominant team and there's weaknesses in the squad. So he immediately gets in and he just says, this is not Juventus. We have, and he builds from the back, the, the defence gets better, and they start to win trophies. And they re-establish their dominance of Italian football. But there isn't much success in Europe. They're still, you know, several years behind infrastructurally because of this spell out in Serie B, because of the relegation. You know, they don't win the cup finals. They are building towards that, but eventually you get to the point where I think Antonio's taken them as far as he can. And there isn't really another job in Italian football, and there at the time wasn't really another world job available that would be of the similar standard. So he takes on the Italian national team. Now he takes the Italian national team on, again, at a slightly weak stage. They don't have the same quality of players from his generation when he was an Italian international. So eventually he has to again build a 
build a system, and he has to utilise the fairly limited resource that he has. They qualify, and they do quite well at the Euros. And they, they, I believe they get knocked out in the quarterfinals. He's taken that team as far as he can. They are not you know, overtly famous, they're not overly talented, but he shows his ability as a tactician. And it's kind of interesting, really, that you know the person that takes over from him at Juventus is Max Allegri. And he then kicks them on in Europe. So, in other words, the Antonio Conte Juventus team does well in Europe, but is still one of the... They're you know effectively a notch above the likes of Porto. In other words, they get out of the group stages, but they don't. They're not in yeah. You know, they're not dangerous to the likes of Real, Barca, Bayern, those kind of teams. But it's Max Allegri's Juventus that get to the final. It's Max Allegri's Juventus that win doubles and doubles and doubles, and so they get to two Champions League finals and they get to another semi final. So there is an element that you can definitely imagine a situation in which Antonio Conte feels that his successes at Juventus have been really thrown into the shade. Because he had to do the hard work. He had to turn a team that was underachieving, that had lost that winning mentality, and he was the one that put them back where they belong. It's only the next guy who came in with a lot more of the advantages and the new stadium opened and the increasing budget. He was the one who was able to buy the players to then kick on to dominate the cup competitions and to do well in Europe. So when he pitches up at Chelsea, there is an element of trying proving a point or wanting to prove himself as a top-level manager. But also there's the element of really wanting to have a job in which there isn't the kind of limitations that he's faced his whole career. So in other words, the smaller teams that he managed in the Italian lower leagues, you know, the issues that he had at Juventus in terms of the sort of transfer budget and the sort of players that they were having to buy and that he was having to do a lot of the sort of donkey work in turning players into brilliant players. The same thing really happened in Italy. He was having to turn goat piss into gasoline. And Chelsea is really the first instance where they're a team that's already got that standing. They've all, they win leagues. They are able to win in Europe. They've won the European Cup. They've won the Europa League. And they have the budget and the Premier League has the money and the gravitas that Serie A don't really have at this point. But he find, he, he really comes up against the limitations of the, I suppose, Abramovich system. In other words, they don't give him control over the transfer budget, they th give him some players, and he's then got to basically do what he always does, which is, you know, sort out the wheat from the chaff and try and build from the back and try and get this team, push this team up to the level where they're supposed to be. And at first, it's a hard ask. You know, he's been given a motley kind of crew of players. There are issues. And within the first couple of months, you know, they're, they started well. They've fallen apart a little bit. And there's talk that he's going to be fired at any point if this failure carries on. And so he has this, you know, tactical rejig. In other words, he's tried to work within the 
the tactical constraints of English football. So in other words, he tries to start with a back four. He tries to work you know, within the structure that the players are effectively used to. And he realises that it's not working. So in other words, he just goes back to his own managerial ethos and puts it onto the players and it just works. Almost instantaneously, they go on this fantastic sort of 30-game run and they streak ahead of the league and they get to the cup final. And his semi-final is his peak moment of brilliance. He basically... They're, they're playing Tottenham in the FA Cup semi-final. Tottenham are coming up against Chelsea and the, the gap between them is narrowing. And if Tottenham win this semi-final, that could then damage Chelsea psychologically. That could be the thing that turns the title race round. Maybe Chelsea drops some points and then Tottenham can you know, potentially win the league. So what he does is he drops his best players to the bench in a semi-final at Wembley against Tottenham, who are big London rivals. And he pulls it off. They win 4-2. In other words, had they lost with the you know, weaker players, so in other words, he's you know, playing Batshuayi instead of Costa, there would be an inbuilt excuse. OK, Chelsea basically punted the FA Cup to win the league. And so there wouldn't have been that, you know, Tottenham wouldn't have had that psychological edge. It makes it even worse on Tottenham. In other words, they have lost to not the strongest Chelsea team, and that really underlines that Tottenham aren't going to win the league. And as such, what, how Antonio Conte perceives his success is that he therefore thinks, I've done this, I've produced this miracle and this tactical rejig, and I've turned a dysfunctional team into a winning team. However, and really what he wants to Chelsea to do, is to give him the keys to the car. To say, okay, we are now giving you complete control of your transfer budget, you can sign the players that you want, you can run the first team exactly as you see fit. And immediately, that is turned down. Immediately, effectively, what Chelsea says is, we think you've done a fantastic job. Keep doing the miracle. Keep turning this dysfunctional team into winners. We will give you some transfer money. We will give you a handful of players. They may not be the players that you want, but you will be the one that will be able to turn it into a functioning, workable, winning team. And so eventually, the whole point is, is that he just... He's mortified. He is then... Back at square one, exactly where he was at Juventus and the Italian national team. He's getting dysfunctional teams, miracle working it, and at the same time... I mean, part of his success at Chelsea was the, the luck that they weren't in Europe. That he had the time to do his miracle work, and his players weren't so tired, so he didn't have to... You know, there wasn't the same level of stress, fatigue, injuries that you'd get playing a... 50, 60 game season that they did with Chelsea where they were really effectively playing a sort of late 40s, early 50s amount of games. So naturally, once you put in the league, the Champions League, the cup competitions, all of the advantages that he had have dissipated. You know, Man City have got massively better. <laughs> Tottenham have, you know, are staying at that level. Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp have got better. 
Man United under Mourinho have got better. And so really that's led to the situation now where he has slept walk and through the season he's not shown the same level of tactical interest and once again we're at a situation where Chelsea are you know, they've missed out on the Champions League and they are now looking for another manager. And really you'd have to say that look at Man City and how you know, because really Abramovich is a third wave owner. So he was the one that really took on what Bates had done at Chelsea and what Risdale had done with Leeds and he had the muscle to do it. He had the financial wherewithal and the financial resources to do it. And what he then opened the door to the fourth wave of owners. So in this instance it's the Man City. It is a city a state taking on a football club and using the wealth of that you know, cash-rich state to build a footballing dominance and a machine and a political element to do. In other words, it's a, it's a display of soft power. And look at how Man City have built their command structure. So in other words, they have the owners, they have the football operations, they have the manager. They have done everything that Abramovich has done. So they've spent money on the women's team, they have spent money on the youth development, they've built the you know, East Manchester youth complex. It's, it's fantastic, it's huge, it is world-leading. And they have then gone on even further. They have then, you know, satellite clubs out in Australia, in America, they have, you know, invested in teams in Uruguay and in Japan. And they're looking to even expand that probably even more. And yet they have completely repudiated the Roman Abramovich model. In other words, there are checks and balances at each stage. So in other words, the owner is a hands-off owner. You don't hear about him. You don't really see him. You know, he is there, but he is just someone who signs the check. It is Berger-Stein and Serrano who are the ones who basically run the worldwide Citigroup football operation. And it is Guardiola who has full control over the transfers. You know, it is done. And so, in other words, anything, in other words, if, if, the, if there's problems on the field, the fans can have a go at Guardiola. If they feel that the, the transfer targets that Guardiola wants haven't been delivered, they can criticise Serrano. If they think Serrano and Berger-Stein have done a bad job, you, they can then complain to the owner. Whereby, with Chelsea, their system is entirely dysfunctional. They're, at the moment, they're operating without a head of football operations. The person running the sort of day-to-day part of Chelsea is someone who is not in a position to criticise Abramovich. The fans cannot criticise Abramovich. It, it comes down to really the sort of Geneva Convention point, is that the Geneva Convention basically says that for... Uh, consider yourself in an army you have to have a chain of command you have to wear a military uniform and effectively what Abramovich has done is to say actually I'm not in the military I don't wear a uniform I am not a part of the military operation side of things so in other words he basically has all of the protection of an owner like Man City who just signs the checks but the reality is, he is 
in uniform. He is basically running this football club exactly how he wants to. In other words, he's got so many different hats at Chelsea, that's where the dysfunction comes in. So you have cheeky executive Roman Abramovich that basically wants this youth system that is world-class, that produces brilliant player after brilliant player. And yet, owner Roman Abramovich keeps on hiring manager after manager who is high-profile, whose remit is instantaneous success. Which means that you can't develop youth players. Anyone who has tried to, or has tried to make changes to the football side of things that hasn't instantaneously worked, have been sacked. So Chelsea haven't had any of these youth players come through and make any kind of positivity. So in other words, you know, there's an element of you know, sort of finance to it. In other words, they really do the sort of pump and dump. In other words, they've signed all of these hundreds of players. They've got, you know, 75 players out on loan. And basically they signed some players who they know well are never going to make an impact at first team level. And so what they do is they basically play them, loan them out, and just simply by being bought by Chelsea, let's say you buy some for two million, you play them in a couple of cup games, you loan them out for a couple of years to a decent team, just purely by being a Chelsea player, your value goes up to 10 million, they sell you, they've made a profit. So, you know, you've had all of those players, you know, some, even Chelsea fans cannot name. And, you know, like the Michael Hector signing, the, you know, just players who are just slightly random. And, you know, it's had a benefit, you know, they have made money out of it, that has helped them with the, you know, FIFA fair play, but at the same time, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, they've had De Bruyne and they've had Salah, and because of the dysfunction with the management side of things, those players, while they were sold at a profit, have come back to haunt them. Because, you know, De Bruyne is now the leader of, you know, midfield dominance of Man City, who have just won the league, and who's, you know, running, whose system as a outfit as a football club seems to be run quite well and they are looking to have a period of long-term success stable growth long-term success whereby Chelsea you've had oh you win a double one year you might finish 10th you might then re-win the league but then you go down to fifth and so really what you'd have to say is that Is there part of this that just Roman Abramovich wants to win youth cups just for the sake of winning youth cups without there really being any anything more to that? It's just, you know, uh, means to an end in that regards. By constantly buying players such as you know, Drinkwater, Bakayoko and Ross Barkley at the expense of the players they have developed in like Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Nathaniel Chalabar. You know, it, it's exacerbated by... You know, the expensive, high-profile, short-term managers that have given a portfolio demanding instant success. In other words, it, it, there's, a, there's a great scene in at the end of Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels where they say you know, they've had this whole issue with trying to get some money to give it to a gangster. Anyway, the point is, is that they're being chased and they end this scene saying, well, the people chasing us for the money are dead. The people that we had to give the money to are dead. 
the neighbours that we ripped off are dead. And as we can see with it, you know, we're in the clear. And I think this is what you can really have to say with Roman Abramovich, is that you can't blame the managers because they've all been sacked. And none of them have had, you know, outside of you know, Mourinho at the starting point, have had anything more than really two to three seasons at the absolute tops before they are gone and replaced. You can't really blame Arneson and Emanolo and Avram Grant because they're all gone. And at no you know, we we simply do not know the extent of how talented Michael Emanolo is as a football executive. Whether he really could have been visionary, whether he could have really run Chelsea, you know, and if he'd been able to hire his own manager. In other words, there is no checks and there is no balances on what Roman Abramovich's power is at Chelsea. He has removed every single thing that you could that would act as a buffer. So in other words, that is that if the media aren't criticising Abramovich, if the fans will follow Abramovich through whatever he has done, in other words, there's been no protest, there's been no walkouts, there's no chance of sack the board. Then he, and if he has the pure power in terms of hiring whoever he wants to be the head of the football operations, if the person who's running the day-to-day side of it from the business side is someone that he has developed through his own, you know, personal style of you know management. In other words, Granovskia has worked her way up to the top and has been basically schooled in the Roman Abramovich method. Then why can't he hire a manager to and then say, okay, here is your budget, put in the youth players. Why why haven't they ever hired a Pochettino like manager? And this is the whole thing, is that when you take away all of those restraints, the only person that you can blame is Abramovich. He is the only one that has stayed the entire period. So all dysfunction goes to is in implicitly Roman Abramovich. And yet he's really hides behind the spectre of actually I'm just the owner signing the checks. When really, as we've seen from Frank Lampard's you know, interview that he gave, you know, on Friday, he's at the training ground. He speaks directly to the players. If he thinks that things haven't gone well, you know, he's the one who will shout them out. He is the one that is deciding who is being sacked as manager and who is being replaced as manager. And it certainly seems to me that the processes by which Chelsea had their first run of fantastic success under Mourinho and was that it was based on elements that now no longer exist so in other words the you can't you don't have the west ham bread basket you can't just pick three or four young english players and you know english irish and then put them into the team and have them succeed you know almost instantaneously that's no longer an option in other words when they have tried to do that with drink water with Ross Barkley, it hasn't worked in the way it did previous to that. And the problems with the dysfunction in the football operations side of it is a corollary of 
his managerial, you know, his style. In other words, it really is. I want you to do instantaneous success within budget and do youth system and improve that, which are just, they don't match up. In other words, even when Chelsea have had a bad season like this season and the season where they finished 10th, there was no bad benefit. They haven't pushed any of their young players through. None of them have made the step up into the first team. No one has, you know, from the Chelsea youth system, has established themselves since John Terry. And that's the late 90s and early 2000s. And that's not for the want of, you know, Emanolo. But then the point is Emanolo never had full control. Because Abramovich doesn't give you that. No manager has ever had full control. The last one really to get anywhere close was Mourinho. And because of his you know, success and because of the checks and balances that you know, his style of football gave, effectively forced Abramovich to you know, really to give up power. Now that has disappeared. He, you know, Abramovich is in complete control of every single element of the football club. And yet the mistakes that are being made and the dysfunction is getting worse and worse. And the, you know, the benefits that used to really come through with regards to replacing the social contract. In other words, the success of they kept on firing managers and then still had success. So they won the Europa League under caretaker Rafa Benitez. They won the Champions League under caretaker Roberto Di Matteo. That's, that's basically ever-declining yields. What he is doing and the style of management that he has imbued into Chelsea is slowly but surely failing. It's ever-declining yields. In other words, with each time they win the league, the next season is bad. And you're now coming up against clubs that like Man City and clubs at European level like Barcelona, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich that are particularly well run. In other words, if you to think five years into the future, which team is more than likely going to be dominant and it's not Chelsea? And the only way I can see that changing and them competing with Manchester City is to, for Roman Abramovich to give up that pure power that he is essentially that he has claimed and to really re-establish the checks and balances that a well-run business and that's outside of football all businesses work well under checks and balances where power is shared rather than jealously guarded you know, I think, in con pure conclusion, I think Abramovich has had, has had success because of his genius in seeing the opportunity that Chelsea and English football could offer. But I now think that Chelsea are succeeding in spite of him, because of this desire to control and have unlimited power where there's no form of you know criticality allowed internally or even externally has now created a situation where where it's incoherent it begets incoherence it stifles creativity and it really appears that the only 
power that is trusted at Chelsea is Roman's power. And the only way he will give that power is in a position of you know, where the person receiving that power is weakened and isn't in a position to, to challenge. And so the question that I'm going to put to you as the, the viewer is, and listener is, do you think Roman Abramovich is able to change? Is he able to delegate power? Thanks a lot.